This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Good evening. We've had a busy week of Zazen. Uh, about a week ago, we had Sashin, uh, in which we had 17 periods of Zazen over the weekend. And then because it's Rohatsu, we also offered um, additional period of Zazen, periods of Zazen during the week. So we had three periods a day every day last week. Some of us did 30 periods of Zazen last week. So we're pretty cool. <laughs> I spoke during the session about our our long tradition of continuous practice. We have many traditions that are truly beautiful and have really deep meaning. And Sashin, which is our longer retreats, uh, preserves many of these traditions. Of course, so does our weekly practice on Monday night. Tonight we chanted a sutra. We do that pretty much every meeting. And chanting a sutra is a practice of remembrance and generosity. It always was from the very beginning. Just after Buddha's death, monks started chanting together what they remembered uh, of his discourses as a way of preserving the teachings and offering the Dharma. Uh, Buddha's discourses weren't written down for hundreds of years after he died. So this was the only way the ancient teachings of the Buddha has, have come to us, that monks chanted them and memorized them. So in Sashin or on a Monday night, our chanting remembers them, you know, expresses our gratitude for their efforts. And it's, it's a way of preserving the Dharma. So we just do it to continue the tradition. Um, there was another tradition that we um, carried on during our session last week, which was um, we took our meals in a kind of a special style called, called Oryoki. Oryoki is a style of taking meals where uh, we sit at our meditation place and are served there and we eat our meals there. We even wash our bowls at, at our meditation place. So it really um, deserves um, uh, mealtime as a very mindful meditative activity. And this has roots in ancient times. In ancient times, monks would, you know, go on begging rounds for their meals and they would hold their bowls and townspeople would come and put food in their bowls. And then that's what they would have to eat that day. And still in Japan, monks do what they call in Japanese takuhatsu, which is just that practice. Uh, 
monks go and they they stand in a street corner or, or wherever with their bowls. And uh, nowadays people make offerings of money, they don't put food. They certainly don't put money and food in the, in the bowls. And the monks recite a short sutra while they're standing there, um, kind of giving their practice to the lay people who are supporting them with their practice. I've seen this done on street leading to a very famous temple in Kyoto in Japan. Um, the street leading up is just a pedestrian street. And so there's no cars. People are walking up to the temple and back from the temple. And there are, you know, I saw just maybe two monks during the time I was there standing you know, in a very traditional upright with their bowl, chanting the sutras. And um, giving to the monks is, is a real feeling of mutuality and generosity, that we have a sense of them giving to us, and of course, we give to them as well. The, Along the sides of the street going to this temple in Kyoto are all kinds of shops and stands and the storekeepers in the shops and stands are uh, happy to um, sell you little things that you would delight in, you know, Dharma kind of related uh, things, maybe copies of a heart sutra, for instance. Um, but uh, the feeling when you when you give to a monk who's chanting the sutra. It's not so much, oh boy, this is something really good. It, it's more a feeling of peace. Maybe a bit of awe that we've gotten to participate in this ancient custom that stems from the time of Buddha and before. When we do our meal ritual, Oryoki, we remind ourselves of the effort and the generosity that brought us the food that we're eating. And we receive it, hoping that we are worthy of it, and vowing to use it to maintain Buddha's practice and his realization. What I'm saying is we have traditions that go way back, even before the time of the Buddha that we're carrying on. And I became interested recently in, in reflecting back on some of the uh, very ancient practices. Part of what started me in this direction is in our Wednesday study group, we're reading um, a series of talks by a teacher whose name is Ajahn Cha. He was a great Thai teacher in a tradition that still lives and practices in the forest, the way Buddha did. And when you read his teachings, you get a flavor of how Buddhism was taught and practiced in those earliest days, and how it was passed down in his tradition which is the Theravada tradition of Buddhism. 
So that started me reflecting on the early traditions of our practice. And then my friend Karen, who attends sometimes, invited me to study Pali with her. Pali is um, the language in which our oldest scriptures were written. Uh, and it's a really interesting language. It's kind of a hybrid language drawn from various languages that were spoken, you know, in the area around where, where Buddha taught in his world. And it has some similarities to Sanskrit, but it's a purely oral language. It has no alphabet of its own. I don't know if I ever heard of a language that has no uh, alphabet, no, uh, no symbols of its own, no script. So this language is always written phonetically in the language of whatever audience it's being directed to. So here in the West, of course, it's written in uh, our um, Roman uh, alphabet. You know. It's so interesting. You have this language which is carrying the words of the Buddha, but it's always being presented in the language or in the, at least the alphabet of the people that are, um, are being taught the Dharma. It's really lovely, I think. But anyway, I have this opportunity to study Pali. And um, in fact, if anybody wants to study Pali with Karen and I, uh, just let me know, because we haven't kind of set things up yet, but uh, there's certainly room for other interested persons. By the way, I'm sure we could do hybrid for you guys who are online. The other thing that has gotten me pointed towards some of the earliest teachings is that a few weeks ago in Mary's talk, she talked about something called the Brahma Viharas, which uh, we translated into English as the divine abodes. And this was another very old teaching. This teaching came about when a person asked the Buddha, how do I abide with Brahma? Brahma is a Hindu god. It's associated with the creation of the universe and all beings. And he's associated with knowledge and teaching the Dharma. So this man asked, how do I uh, live with Brahma? How do I ab ab abide with Brahma? And Buddhist teaching in this area was not exactly to give the kind of answer the person wanted. You get the sense from the sutra that the person wanted kind of a formula. How do I get into heaven? He didn't answer that question. Instead, he answered the question, how do I live in the Dharma? How do I return to the spiritual source? Which, of course, Brahma was a symbol of. And he said, to return to the source, 
One abides with friendliness and kindness. One abides with compassion. One abides with sympathetic joy, that is, happiness, um, uh, that the happiness of others is what makes us happy. And finally, one abides with equanimity. That is to say, all things are equally valuable. And you may have encountered some of the Pali words that express these concepts. Metta, or loving kindness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, um, um, Mudita means sympathetic joy, sorry. And Upeka, which is equanimity. And there's a really old legend about these, these four qualities. This is the legend of King Mahasudasana. He was a king of great virtue and wealth. And he used all of his wealth for the benefit of the people in his kingdom. He built cities for people with every beauty and every luxury that was available. He constructed 84,000 lotus ponds for the enjoyment of the people. And the people in their gratitude built a great palace for him. So this whole society was founded on principles of giving and mutuality. It's interesting to compare that way of organizing society to our way of organizing society. Because we have a society that's based not on giving, but accumulation, on craving, wanting things, and clinging, or hanging on to them. Our leaders can also have great wealth, but they use it to build golden escalators for themselves. So this palace had a meditation room. The meditation room was called the Room of the Great Array. I think it says this interesting thing about how ancients thought about our meditation, about their meditation. The Room of the Great Array. You know, we have this teaching in Buddhism about the net of Indra, which is a teaching that all things are connected, like jewels at each, each uh, intersection of the, the strings of a net. And everything reflects everything else. So this is sometimes talked about as the great array. So they saw the meditation as a meditation that was open, to everything, this whole interconnected uh, universe. And also, 
The idea of the great array is a wonderful metaphor for our zazen, where everything is arrayed before us. If we sit for long enough, every feeling, every experience, everything, every memory will come to us. It's the great array. So this king entered the room of the great array and he engaged in a series of deep meditative concentrations in which essentially he dropped all cravings. Even he dropped the preference for happiness over unhappiness. They were equal to him at the end of his meditation. And the sutra tells us, the legend tells us, that when he accomplished this meditation, he left the meditation hall, the room of the great array. And the ordinary world seemed golden to him. And precious. And he sat there and he dwelled in the Brahma Viharas, pervading the whole world above, below, around, everywhere without limit, with a mind of friendliness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, and of equanimity. So this legend gives us this little insight about how these wonderful qualities, compassion and kindness for all beings, arise from deep meditation on opening up to all things, on dropping away a craving for some things and our avoidance of others. So I have to say, there's one factor in the Brahma Viharas that I would point to as most important. And that is the factor of equanimity. That equanimity is, is the gateway to being able to be friendly to all beings, compassionate with all beings. Because as soon as we start saying, well, I like some beings and I don't like others, then our capacity to be friendly and compassionate is diminished. We have to have equanimity in order to really engage in these wonderful practices of being of great help to others. Compassion, when it's tempered with equanimity, um, leads us to relieve suffering, not with the attitude of righting some wrong that's causing the suffering, but just with the feeling of extending a hand to others. If we didn't have equanimity in our compassion, compassion might lead to us fighting a war to relieve the suffering of some people and in so doing to harm others. This is not the compassion that we hope arises in us. So in studying these ancient teachings, I, I was reminded of how important this practice of equanimity really is. 
And in our zazen, I think that equanimity is responsible for the clarity that sometimes arises in our zazen. There's an old metaphor about our meditation. And the metaphor presents the mind as if it were a cloudy glass of a glass of cloudy water. And the metaphor is, if you put this glass down and avoid agitating it for a while, all the impurities in the water will eventually settle to the bottom, leaving the water clear. Wonderful metaphor for Zazen, isn't it? You don't have to do anything. In fact, anything you do will disturb the clarity that might arise from your Zazen. The real key Sazen is to treat everything equally, any experience that comes up, not grasping for one or pushing the other away. This clarity doesn't always occur in our Sazen. It seems unusual even when it does occur because we're so familiar with obscurity, the obscurity that comes about from all of our competing wants and feelings and needs always being present. But the world, as it really presents itself to us, is not obscure at all. It hides nothing. The world does not dissemble or prevaricate. It does not pretend that it's something else. It does not try to get our vote. Our confusion, our failure to see clearly is not the fault of the water or the glass. It's the fault of um, our lack of equanimity. We're told about our Zazen that when the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. And I think this was the understanding of meditation from the very beginning. When we have clarity, we're neither leaning forward nor backward. But in our lives, we're almost always doing one or the other, or maybe even both at the same time. So we don't have a lot of clarity in our daily life. What settles to the bottom in our zazen from that clouded glass of water is all our desires for things to be different. All our craving for this and avoidance of that. I'd like to read you a little passage from Ajahn Chah. He says that um, when we have clarity, the mind is empty of grasping and attachment to things. He says that doesn't mean that there's nothing. There's no people or objects in the world. There is the empty mind. There are people and there are things. 
but in the mind, there is the perception of it all as truth. The perception of everything as it really is. And in the mind is the perception of everything as uncertain and impermanent and constantly changing. Things are seen as being the way they are, following the natural course, as the elemental, an elemental nature arising and passing away. And like Ajahn Chah's teaching, He encourages us to see with clarity. And if we do, it means that we will see a feature of everything that we almost always deny. We will see that the things we want are temporary and unreliable. He uses the word untrustworthy. He says, when we realize this one truth, that all things are of the same nature, the nature to change. Then we relax our grip. We put things down. We see that they are empty. And we don't have love or hate for them. Instead, we have peace. Ajahn Chah is so good at articulating the most important truth of his practice. And he gives us a real window into seeing what our practice is. So the thing I want to teach about our practice tonight, about our Zazen, is that Zazen is the practice of being at peace with the flow of birth and death. Satsang is the practice of whatever it is, whether it's something we want or something we don't want, it's okay. Whatever happens next is okay. Satsang is that kind of open-heartedness. It says whatever shows up is okay. And it's very difficult for us to do that because what is real is that everything is what it is, not what we want it to be, and that everything is changing. And so nothing is reliable. There's nothing that will allow us to cling to it for very long. And as long as we are clinging, our experience will be that we lose everything. I think it's that clinging, the tendency to cling that can settle to the bottom of the glass in our Zazen. And that settling clarifies things for us. 
Our stance in Zazen is what is real is completely okay with me. There are plenty of harmful things in the world. There's plenty of things that make me sad and I'm completely willing to have that sadness. Sadness, I'm not going to try to turn to something that makes me happy instead, so I could ignore my sadness. In a way, in Zazen, our sadness and our happiness are equal. And hopefully, they both lead us to extend a friendly and compassionate hand to others when they are saddened by their misfortune and to share their joy when they are joyful. So what we hope is the clarity that arises in our Zazen will actually help us when we get off the cushion and talk to the person next to us instead of, you know, just sit quietly with the person next to us and hear about the lives of the people that we encounter and we know and extend friendliness, loving kindness that we aspire to. Thank you.